And welcome to the UVM podcast, the place where we discuss all things related to utility vegetation management and the ways in which we can collectively improve the reliability, safety, legal, and regulatory compliance on our transmission and distribution networks. Nick, how are you doing today and who do we have as a guest? Hi, Steve. I'm doing very well, thank you. Today we have David Bayard joining us. David is the Vegetation Manager at Seattle City Light, the 10th largest publicly owned utility in the United States. Seattle City Light is located here in the Pacific Northwest and has a transmission network consisting of 625 line miles of NERC-regulated 230 kV transmission, 100 miles of 115 kV, and a distribution network consisting of 2,330 line miles um, over a 131-square-mile service territory. It also owns and operates five of its own hydroelectric facilities. And interestingly, in 2005, Seattle City Light became the first electric utility in the United States to fully offset all of its carbon emissions and has remained carbon neutral every year since. So, David, on that note, I'd like to offer you a warm welcome to this podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Steve. I'm, I'm pleased to be here and talk about vegetation management. Welcome to the show. And perhaps we could start with learning a bit about your personal background and how you became involved with vegetation management. Dave? Yeah, Steve, I think uh, the best word to describe my journey is is circuitous. I grew up outside of the Boston area and I never really had a clearly defined career trajectory. So I kind of amassed a long list of unique jobs that I worked through high school and college. I always enjoyed working outdoors and physical jobs and enjoyed working at heights. From the jobs I had, I bailed hay as a kid. I, I've been a chimney sweep. I used to put up scaffolding on construction sites, that kind of thing. And then when I graduated college with a degree in English literature, and that didn't immediately lead to employers knocking down my door with job offers, I fell back on what I knew, outdoor physical work. And I got a job working for a small residential tree care company, mostly dragon brush at start. Within a year, I was climbing trees and I just fell in love with it. Continued to work as a climber as I crisscrossed back and forth across the country for 10 years, finally settling up in Seattle with my wife and my then four-month-old son. Got hired on at Seattle City Light initially to run their tree replacement program in 2011, and that eventually turned into a supervisory role, then a VM manager role, and most recently I've added our fleets and mobile equipment group to my roster. As Nick mentioned, City Light is a generation transmission distribution shop, so I oversee everything vegetation from the transmission rights away to the distribution power line clearance program, substation maintenance, and the urban forestry work that City Light does as a part of the city of Seattle. Been in it 10 years deep now, and I'm still waiting for my first boring day at work. Well, uh, having been in this industry for about 40 years, uh, those boring days are far and in between. Uh, I would point out, by the way, David, that you're not the first tree person I've worked with that actually was an English lit major, which I'll have to put you two in touch in the future. But back to the question, for those less familiar with publicly owned utilities, can you provide our listeners with an understanding of who owns, controls, and oversees Seattle City Light? And I guess, how do you fit into local government? Sure, yeah. Uh, Seattle City Light is a municipal utility. We're a department of the city of Seattle. So we literally work for the population that we serve. My CEO likes to refer to our end users as customer owners because that phrase really clearly describes the relationship that we have with them. 
Our CEO serves at the pleasure of the mayor of Seattle. Our departmental budget and our rates are set through approval from the mayor's office and through the city council. And those are the bodies to whom we're most directly accountable. I've always been a big believer in public service and civic duty. So I've always been proud to work for a company that allows me to satisfy those roles through my day-to-day responsibilities. And you know, being a city department also allows a layer of diversity in my work. So I can be talking about transmission IVM one minute, switch to a meeting on citywide canopy cover goals the next, and then be sitting in a community group talking about our impacts of our work on traditionally underserved communities of color in the next meeting. Like I said, never a dull day at City Light. That's uh, interesting, David. I have a a follow-up question on the citywide canopy cover goals that uh, you mentioned. Uh, In a recent episode of the podcast with uh, Larry Kahn from Tulane University Law School, he raised the topic of uh, social equality in energy delivery. And the point that he was making was this, um, that poorer neighborhoods typically have lower canopy cover than richer neighborhoods. Yeah, everybody pays the same price per kilowatt hour. So in effect, poorer neighborhoods uh, maybe subsidizing energy delivery for richer neighborhoods. Um, just curious, in the citywide canopy cover goals, is there consideration given to um, the socioeconomic status of neighborhoods and uh, attempts to rebalance that? Yeah, that is a great question, Nick. And I'm pleased to report that it does directly impact those goals and how they get addressed. You know, you mentioned trends that have been identified towards inequity in canopy cover where you have wealthier to do neighborhoods tend to have more trees and be better covered. City of Seattle is no exception. Um, That is absolutely the case. And we did a canopy analysis a handful of years ago that kind of proved what we already intuitively knew to be true. The other um, piece to that that I'll add is that in a lot of major metropolitan American cities, Seattle included, this is not by accident, right? You can look at historic um, real estate policies and find the practice known as redlining was implemented in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, all over the country where uh, real estate developers identified areas they considered high risk um, and so made it harder to get home loans. And those were generally informed by the demographic of the population living there. So put it bluntly, communities of color and communities with less income were not afforded the opportunity to get housing loans, um, as well as richer, well-to-do communities. And we're still seeing reverberations of that today. But the way the city is engaging with that is being very pointed and intentional about where we engage with um, tree replacement programs. So City Lights replacement program, we focus specifically on neighborhoods that have been identified through an equity analysis process as being traditionally underserved by the city. So those are, again, communities of color and tended to be Uh, lower income communities, and we focus our replanting practices specifically there. The Department of Transportation does a similar um, process when they're looking to plant. That's uh, that's fascinating, David. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm pleased to hear that um, Seattle City Light is is making progress in that area. Speaking of day-to-day responsibilities, let's take a quick break and hear a few words from this episode's sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Live EO. LiveEO offers the market-leading satellite-based vegetation management solution which helps vegetation managers to improve network reliability and safety. 
The software automatically generates grid-wide vegetation overviews from up-to-date satellite imagery and provides insights about tree location, height, species, and vitality. The system calculates vegetation risk for each span and helps in budgeting and prioritizing cutback activities. The best part is, for listeners of the UVM podcast, they offer a free pilot for 30 miles of overhead lines. That way, you can find out for yourself whether their analytics are of value to you. If you are interested in the free pilot or in learning more about Live EO, just go to live-eo.com slash UVM or simply send a message to info at live-eo.com. And welcome back, folks. So, David, how did Seattle City Light start out? I presume based on the name, you were one of the original city lighting companies? Yeah, great question, Steve. Uh, City Lights had a long and storied past, going back pretty much to the beginning. At the invention of uh, incandescent light bulbs, folks in Seattle, which at the time was only a city 10 years old, saw the light, you might say. And, And within seven years, the privately owned Seattle Electric Light Company was built and built the first incandescent lighting system west of the Rockies. In 1902, as the local electric companies started to consolidate in response to the increased demand for electricity, the city of Seattle built the nation's first publicly owned hydroelectric project on the Cedar River, just to the east of Seattle, at the time run by the water department. And that's actually still in operation today. Then in 1910, as demand really exploded, the Seattle City Council created a separate electric department and Seattle City Light was formally born. Over the next 20 years, the department built the first of what would become three more hydro dams north of Seattle up at the Skagit River Hydro Project. That started producing electricity in 1924 when Calvin Coolidge, the president himself, uh, started the flow of electricity to Seattle by pressing a button in the White House. The Skagit Hydro Project was completed in 1964, and in 1967, we started building our last and most recent hydro project in the northeast corner of the state, Boundary Hydroelectric Project. In a lot of ways, our, the story of City Light uh, kind of mirrors the story of Manifest Destiny of the Europeans coming across the country and conquering the wild lands full of 200-foot tall trees and harnessing the wild rivers that cut salmon highways from the mountains to the seas and And much like that history, you know, there was a little attention that was paid at the time as to who or what was there when the Europeans first arrived. I think we've learned a lot since those days as an institution, and we're hearing echoes of that history today as we engage with tribal entities and other local stakeholders in pursuit of um, re-upping our operational license with FERC up at the Skagit Project. The voices of those people in the natural world that we built over and through are really making themselves heard, and I'm Proud to say Seattle is responding and learning how to listen. Well, it's uh, great to hear that, David, and also, you know, a very uh, fascinating walk through the uh, the history of Seattle City Lights. Um, yeah, just thinking about that, I've been interested for a while now in how local isolated municipal grids evolved uh, into the national grid that we see today. Perhaps in the future with distributed energy resources, localised storage capability and peer-to-peer trading, we'll go back to a more localised model with the grid providing reliability and quality. Uh, but I digress. Can you give us an overview of the VM program you're running at Seattle City Lights? What are the core elements of this and do you operate on a cycle? Sure. Yeah, I run uh, four programs in the Veg Management Group, our distribution power line clearance program within our service territory, which includes the city of Seattle and several of the surrounding municipalities. 
the transmission right away maintenance program, which covers our 115 and 230 kV system rights of ways from the hydro dams to the substations and in between them. The landscapes maintenance program, which maintains landscapes at the 70 plus properties that City Light owns in and around the city, which includes our active substations as well as decommissioned 4KV subs that we used to use and operate more at a neighborhood level. Our urban forestry program is involved with tree replacement, uh, community engagement in the transmission right of way and urban forestry policy at the citywide level. Our distribution programs on a four and a half year cycle and the transmission program is on a two year cycle. Oh, interesting. And, um, you know, are there any key differences between the 4.5 year distribution program and the two year transmission program beyond just the, uh, the length of the cycle? Yeah, they're quite different animals on a number of fronts. The clearance distances are tied to the voltages, of course. So as the voltage goes up, the clearance distance we require go up as well. Also, the level of engagement in the process by our customer base on the distribution side is considerably higher than it is for the communities our transmission rights of ways move through but don't directly service. The people of Seattle generally are intelligent, vocal, and really care about their trees. So we spend a lot of time and resources educating the public, talking them through our processes, describing our employee and contractor credentials, that sort of thing. About eight years ago, we started requiring all contracted tree crews to have at least a minimum of one International Society of Arboriculture certified arborist on the crew at all times to make sure there was someone who could speak to basic customer concerns and questions, as well as to ensure the quality of the work and to make sure that it met the industry's best practices. The tree populations are pretty different between the programs as well, with the transition rights of ways dominated by a handful of mostly native species, dug firs, big leaf maples, red alders, western hemlock, that kind of thing. And the distribution network is in a major metropolitan city with a very diverse urban forest. There's literally hundreds of species and varieties of trees planted in the transportation right of way where most of our overhead lines are. And that impacts how we manage the trees, how quickly they grow back, that sort of thing. We do very little hotspot work on the transmission rights away because those by and large are well established, but we have a dedicated crew working on cycle busters daily on the distribution side. David, does the Pacific Northwest and specifically the moist, temperate, coniferous forest biome that you operate in present any unique challenges to your programs? Yeah, it certainly does. It's funny, every time I go back home to Boston, I'm struck by how cute the little trees in New England are. The, the tallest trees we have back there, the white pines top out at 100, 120 foot most. That's an adolescent height for some of the natives in the Pacific Northwest, like the Doug firs and our Sitka spruce. And for the giant sequoias, redwoods, and eucalyptus trees that aren't from here, but really, really like the weather. Trees that large really change the equation when we're thinking about if and or how much protection we can give the system from off right away trees that fail. Along the same lines, it's not only the big trees that love the Pacific Northwest weather, it's just about every other plant, including invasive species like Himalayan blackberry, Scotch broom, Japanese knotweed, poison hemlock, which all flourish here. Honestly, you can leave a car park for two weeks in the Seattle area and you'll start getting moss growing on it. But the real problem relative to the biome we're in is that it's changing. We're seeing longer and longer drought periods and it's causing considerable die-off of trees that rely on the water and the moisture in the air to survive. Similar, we're seeing significant rain events, 
following those droughts, which supersaturate the soils, leading to whole root plate failures of otherwise healthy trees. And those giants I was talking about earlier, their susceptibility to pathogens are increasing as their health decreases and the stress increases. So we're seeing more standing dead hazard trees at 180, 200 foot strike distance to the lines. And when they come down and hit the distribution span, they pull the whole world down with them. It's definitely a very interesting time to be living in, that's for sure. They sound like a very challenging risk to, uh, to be dealing with, David. So we've noticed that in recent years, wildfire activity in Washington has increased. Is this having an impact on operations at Seattle City Light? Yeah, absolutely. You know, wildfire used to be an issue only for the part of the state that was on the east side of the Cascade Mountains and our whole system, besides the Boundary Hydro Project, are on the west side. But now we're seeing wildfires on the west side like we've never seen before. And the impact of smoke in the air from wildfires in neighboring communities in Canada and California and even Idaho can shut down crews for days or even weeks because it's unhealthy to be outside and breathe. Additionally, the regulations about working in the woods, the international fire precaution levels set by the Department of Natural Resources, I mean, we're seeing more hoot owl days, days where we're restricted to how many hours we can operate and how much work we can do at a given day in forested regions. And uh, which uh, benchmarks do you use to track the success of the program, David? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, Nick. It shouldn't be as interesting as it is. But, you know, I, I track success based primarily on whether or not we're accomplishing what we set out to do, what we scheduled to do on time within our budget, as well as what we're hearing from our customer owners. Presently, we're ranked number one by J.D. Power and Associates for a business customer satisfaction for a mid-sized Western utility, number nine for residentials. And in 2020, we were awarded the diamond reliability status by the American Public Power Association, which is their highest ranking. Our SADI number is pretty steady in the upper 60s year over year, and our safety hovers at about 0.5 pretty consistently. And both of those numbers are good, especially in our region. As a municipal provider, City Light isn't as on the bleeding edge of technology as some of the IOUs, which have the funding and the flexibility to be. So we're still dealing with a lot of older systems that lack the data to drive decision making. We're making some big investments in enterprise systems right now and going through a lot of technological growing pains. But it's good to see the utility moving forward. And as uh, most of our listeners are aware, California compels utilities to implement wildfire management plans and also to operate distribution under mandated minimum clearances. Has there been a regulatory response to the threat of wildfires in Washington state? And not yet, Nick, but they're definitely coming. So I think it was last year, the state of Oregon passed a law requiring utilities to have wildfire mitigation plans. And while Washington has not yet done that, our CEO is committed to having one in place for City Light by next spring. Obviously, that has a lot to do with vegetation management, so I get to sit on the task force that's developing that plan. Again, never a dull day in the office. We presently don't have any preventative power shutoff programs because we've been very fortunate so far, and we don't have any minimum regulated clearances other than the NERC clearances. And when those regulations do come to Washington, um, I would expect them to be around transmission first before we start seeing them on the distribution side. David, I got a quick question for you. Who actually does the work there? Uh, do you have a lot of vendors working for you or do you have any in-house people? How's the UVM work done? 
Yeah, it's kind of a mix, Steve. Um, on the transmission side, we've got a couple of transmission right-of-way crews who handle both the built infrastructure maintenance as well as the vegetation management. Every now and again, we'll farm out a very specialized body of work to a contractor, but by and large, that's in-house. On the distribution side, it's entirely contract crews that do the trimming and the notification is all done by contractors as well. The program's administered and run by in-house crews and most of our front-end customer support work is done by City Light personnel. And then on the landscape side, pretty unusual for a lot of utilities. We actually have a team of gardeners on staff who do the interior substation maintenance, um, but also maintain the exteriors of the substations, many of which are really showpiece landscapes in uh, neighborhoods that are really celebrated by those neighborhoods. So they do a fantastic job maintaining those at a very high level. David, in a prior answer, you kind of pointed out that you're probably not investing the same amount of money in technology as your IOUs near you, but are you leveraging technology to support your program in any way? And if so, how? Yeah, Steve, we are. Right now, we're kind of knee deep in the implementation of a new comprehensive work management system for my veg group that will allow us have a more modern mobile workforce based platform for my crews to work with. We've been dabbling with LIDAR for years and are having some great conversations about making that an enterprise wide initiative. So that's really exciting. We have an amazing GIS shop at City Light, which produces one off custom mapping products for us. And we're getting a lot better at stitching those together so they interact with one another and they're available across the utility. So that's pretty exciting as well. You know, like you mentioned, munis are seldom the early adopters of tech, but we're moving in the right direction. And, you know, really, we don't have much of an excuse. We're surrounded by huge tech companies. It seems like there's one on every other corner where there isn't already a Starbucks in Seattle. (laughs) Oh, well, let me grab a drink of my coffee here. Uh, David, we're getting close to the end of this episode. Um, And before I ask my last question, I'd like to thank you very much for the time you spent with us today. I really enjoyed the chat. Before I turn it over to Nick, how do you see this use of technology progressing in the future? Yeah, Steve, well, I'll echo what you just said. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak with both of you. This is this has been fun. But to answer your question, you know, obviously I, I see the use of technology continuing to increase, continuing to get more and more unwieldy as it comes online, and then begin settling into what works when people figure out how all these things stitch together and, and what works for the different business needs and organizations. The other side of the coin, of course, from the technology, though, is the people that we hire to do the work and the communities that we serve and the natural environment that we do our work in. I'm really excited about some of the ways that City Light is using technology, not only for the cool space age stuff like wearable augmented reality glasses so they can see underground network infrastructure, but also to help us better engage with communities and with our customer owners to solicit their feedback, understand what their needs are, and to deepen our connection with those communities. The tech is amazing, but it's a tool, not the answer. At least not until the robots take over and we can all retire. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully that won't be for uh, many more years to to come, David. Yeah, just end by saying thanks again, gents. And, uh, you know, I'll uh, leave you with a, a quick note for our listeners. 
For those in the audience, we'd love to get feedback from you and would also welcome input on future guests or topics that you'd like us to cover. Uh, feel free to send us an email at podcast at utilityvegetationmanagement.com and we'll make it happen. That's it for today's episode. See you on the next one.